You're listening to City Beat, the weekly podcast from UrbanMilwaukee.com. Today we are joined by Justin Belinsky, a candidate for the city's 8th Aldermanic District in 2020. We will discuss his vision for the city, what it takes to run a council campaign, and what he learned from running multiple successful political campaigns. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Justin Belinsky, welcome to City Beat. Thank you for having me. Before we start the show, I want to make clear that this show isn't an endorsement of Justin or any other candidate. We hope to have a number of candidates on as the 2020 city and county elections draw closer and closer. It seems hard to believe, but we're less than a year away. But before we dive in, Justin, why don't you give us a little background on yourself? My name is Justin Belinsky. I'm an organizer, you know, a political professional. I spend about a decade and a half working with youth live on the south side of Milwaukee in uh, the Burnham Park neighborhood with my wife and uh, our pets. And you've been married for 20 years already. How old are you? Uh, I'm, uh, I'll am i be 37 this June. Uh, I've been married for almost six years. Tell us, I guess, a bit about your organizing history. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like I said, I started my career working with youth for quite a while in MPS and in mental health. And, you know, you get to see working with youth a lot of the things that uh, or a lot of the, the ways that the system has failed our families. And so after Act 10, started to get a little more engaged and, you know, eventually looked and said, well, let's see who's running for alderman in 2012 here. Found out my neighbor, uh, Ben Juarez, is running, helped on his campaign and kind of got the bug from there. And then I believe something might have happened in 2016. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I decided to run for that aldermanic seat while I was uh, a para at MPS and uh, came within 161 votes of of beating the four-term incumbent at that time, uh, Bob Donovan. And you said one thing there that I think we should unpack. What is a para at MPS? So a para is a, is an educational assistant. They're the ones who do, who do small group learning uh, while the teacher is, is essentially working with the larger group for the most part. All right. And before we go any further, I want to kind of define what the 8th District is. I have some data from 2011 from the city's redistricting. Jump in if I'm, you know, you have updated data on any of this. Sure. But as many of the council districts are, there are about 40,000 people. This one in 2011, according to the census, was 39,580 people. 25.7% of the residents are Caucasian. 6.8% are black. 62% are Hispanic, the second most of any district in the city. And 3.5% are Asian. Uh, But the way most people judge districts is where they are. So in this case, it's 20th Street roughly on the east, and then the city limits on the west, which roughly are Miller Parkway, 39th Street, it it changes. Forest Home on the south, and Interstate 94 on the north. Did I miss anything there? No, that's pretty much it. Uh, It's interesting. If you look at the shape of the actual district, it kind of looks like a a half-crushed beer can or an apple core. So it does kind of jut in and out, like you mentioned. Yeah, was, there was recently, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, a food truck ban, and it, for a journalist, was difficult to describe because it was the, the specific legal language was to the city's western limits. Well, that is meaningless to most people on the west side because the western limit moves so much. So I like the crushed beer can analogy. Right. How much does the Menominee Valley factor into the district given that no one lives there, actually? Right. So no one... There is no residential, as far as to my knowledge, in the Valley, uh, at least during the, in the 8th District, but there is quite a bit of economic activity. A couple of breweries, uh, Sobelman's uh, is in there, um, you know, some, some really innovative businesses in the Valley District. 
Okay. And let's do a quick pop quiz because I gave the geography in terms of streets. What neighborhoods are we talking about? So we got Burnham Park, Layton Park, Silver City, Muskego Way, Clark Square. Those are the main ones. I don't okay. think I'm missing anything there. And so would you, is any of the neighborhood considered Walker's Point or is that all to the east? No, Walker's Point uh, traditionally is like 11th Street-ish and, and east, or even sometimes 6th Street and east. And then there's Walker's Square, which goes up to Cesar Chavez, and then it starts Clark Square. And so the district is there. We talk a lot about segregation in Milwaukee. Do you see that play out in the district? Or is the district largely unified in its racial diversity? I mean, there's diversity in all of the district. However, there is a big sort of dividing line in our district, and that is the 27th Street or Layton Boulevard line. And so I think you'll find uh, west a lot more uh, white and Latino families, and then east uh, more of an African-American presence, and also a lot of Latino and white families as well. And then let's get to the big question, and we'll go from there. Why are you running? What inspires you to do this? Yeah, well, the first time or this time? Well, I guess both. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the, the first time it was really, you know, I looked around and, and I, I didn't see anyone stepping up. I really just felt that the, that you know, our former alderman who's announced his retiring uh, was just not, no longer representative of the district. You know, he, he worked hard, but I, I just did not feel that he was inclusive enough, was not forward thinking enough, you know, was not effective enough at, at really improving the state of the district. You know, I, I look at the district when I moved in 12 years ago. I can't say that it's gotten appreciably better. Uh, some parts are better, some parts are worse. I felt that if you know if no one else was going to do it, I was going to give it a shot, and you know came very close. And and really, that race is what inspired me to get into organizing as a profession. You know, I organized in the neighborhood after I lost uh, that I live in, and then uh, organized on healthcare uh, more broadly uh, before you know working on a statewide campaign last year for Mendel Barnes. And so now this time we have, and you mentioned you lived there 12 years ago in the district. We should note that the district changed fairly significantly in the 2011 redistricting, correct? Yeah, it changed right before I had helped the other candidate run in 2012. Yep. And so with that, you, you really hit the nail on the head while you ran in 2016. In 2020, we just learned that Alderman Donovan isn't running for re-election. What changes this time? Well, I mean, what changes is it's an open seat, so you're going to see probably a few people that want to file to run, but also not having an incumbent in an alderman race is very interesting because, you know, it makes it easier to approach business owners and find ways to partner uh, because they're no longer worried about their license or they're no longer worried about their standing with the city um, because there's an incumbent in there. And what do you think are going to be the big issues in this campaign? Biggest issues, I mean, it's neighborhood stability, it's safety, it's infrastructure, like the roads uh, in particular, and just economic opportunity. It's, you know, pretty lacking in our district. So I know in 2016, you relied a lot on knocking on doors as many as possible. Is that the plan this time as well? Absolutely. I mean, that's the only way to do it, I think, in a, in a city race. People really want to know you. They want to know that you're going to show up, that you're going to be there. And I guess not as it relates necessarily to your specific campaign, but what does that look like for, I think for a lot of people that just go to the polls, Not unfortunately, not a lot of them go to the polls, but those of us that do vote regularly, we go to the polls, we vote. What's it look like for a candidate on the ground actually going door to door. What does that work like? How many doors are you knocking on? Well, in 2016, I personally knocked on over 22,000 doors. Now, many of that was about five times knocking on each door of potential voters and then had various volunteers out uh, doing that as well. Uh, but it's a lot of listening. You know, you'd be surprised. You just, you you say, hey, I'm running for alderman. You know, what concerns do you have? You'll be surprised at how much people will share with you uh, having never met you before. And what are you hearing in that case? Yeah, I mean, I think 
it does sort of depend on who you're talking to, but but safety and uh, reckless driving, uh, you know, human trafficking and and drug dealing are probably the things you hear about the most. And we should note, I guess, one thing we didn't talk about: the council races, the mayoral race as well, are nonpartisan. So you're not having to declare as a Democrat. I think it's safe to say the district leans liberal, though I'm sure there's plenty of people with varying conservative positions. Uh, what are the issues that would impact the city as a whole that people in the district are talking about? Are there, is there anything that grows out of the 8th district? Say like the streetcar downtown becomes this issue for much of the whole city. Is there anything that is unique to the 8th district that really spreads throughout the city? Yeah, I think that that is one of the failings of maybe the previous uh, you know, alderman was that it was not something that he was able to, to work with other aldermen from different parts of the city and kind of create a unified vision for it. Uh, you know, it was sort of a, a fiefdom approach where, you know, you take care of your block and your district and, and that's about it. And I think we need to kind of get past that because one of the reasons we have, I think, the segregation we have is that we haven't been willing to work together across communities, across the viaducts, you know, on the issues that affect everybody. Um, you know, when someone steals a car on the south side, you know, they might be driving it over to the north side, right? I mean, that's a very simple example. But, you know, we're all affected by the poverty and by the lack of opportunity that, that we've seen in way too much of the city. Are there specific policies you want to see enacted around that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, right now we're seeing a lot of development. We're seeing a lot of improvements in certain neighborhoods of the city. And maybe that isn't being expanded enough out into the neighborhoods. So when we're giving, you know, tax incentives to to try to improve certain areas, you know, maybe we should think about who's getting those contracts. You know, are they people from the neighborhood? Uh, are they people just from the city in general? Are they from underserved communities? You know, are, what is our, how many uh, minority contractors are we using when we're when we're building something? So, I mean, yeah, I think that's something so we can do. Right now, the city's RPP program, it's Residence Preference Program. So any project that gets a million dollars in city funds, a million or more in city funds, is required to have 40% of the work hours performed by unemployed or underemployed city, uh, city residents. So to get that messy uh, upfront out of the way that my editor always loves and I have to explain, the big, uh, I think, perceived problem with their program is it is race blind. It is just unemployed or underemployed city residents. That can be a white person from the southwest side. It can be a Hispanic person from the south side, an African-American from the north side to stereotype our racial divides in the city. I know certain members of the council are interested in looking at making that not a race-blind program. Is that something that interests you? I think so. I, I think that, um, you know, certainly unemployment is unemployment, whatever whatever color you are, whatever background you come from. But, you know, certainly there was a study that uh, had come out uh, recently about people that live in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. And it was something to the tune of, uh, a Latino family making $100,000 a year was more likely to live in a neighborhood of concentrated poverty than a, a white family making, you know, like basically the minimum wage, you know. So I think there is a there is a separate element that is uh, that is based on race or based on color that uh, has sort of been holding people back. Okay. And what, I guess, as that relates to kind of what the business topic du jour, it seems, at least on the citywide level, has been, in the 8th District recently, the food trucks. How does the, the unique 8th District food truck culture that also kind of spans into some of the nearby districts, what is your take on that? There's, I think Alderman Donovan just had his, was it a 7th ban or a 6th ban overturned? I think it was the 6th, and that was the only one that was ever overturned, yeah. And what is your stance on that? Would you be looking to revoke all those other bans? Do some of them make sense? 
I don't think, I mean, in this particular case, it was, it was a law that was made for one truck on a part of National Avenue that, you know, didn't, I mean, he was there for, since I lived in the neighborhood, he was there. And I never saw a parking issue. So I did, I thought it was uh, very punitive to make an entire ordinance for one truck. Now, if you look more broadly, I think maybe we should have a more uniform policy, you know? Uh, yeah, there's laws about two hour parking, but it's not enforced equally, right? On, on Burnham, right by the park, there are two food trucks there every day, all day. Uh, why was it an issue all of a sudden that a, a, a car or a, a food truck was on national for two hours, you know? So I think we do need to look at, can we find a way that these entrepreneurs can operate and and do so without, you know, having to violate some ordinance to do so. Okay. And what are some positions you're taking that uh, would really bring things to the district? I assume that's part of your vision is talking about when I go to City Hall, I'm going to be advocating for you on these issues. What are those issues? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a very heavily residential district. I think 83% of the properties are, are residential zones. So, you know, we have some some small compact commercial districts like national lincoln parts of greenfield 35th parts of 27th and i think we need to make sure that when we see vacant uh storefronts or businesses that we we work to get those filled when um you know we have an area like west national which has some good things going on we have to find a way to expand on that and come to full occupancy you know let's let's create that international dining district that we've been trying to create for for probably about a decade there and how does affordable housing play into the 8th District? It's become kind of a big topic at City Hall, particularly as it relates to downtown where we're seeing all these new kind of luxury developments happen. In the 8th District, I don't know that there's a ton of new housing being created. There is one project that I'm aware of that is happening right now, and that is in the Clark Square area. And it is an uh, interesting collaboration with Journey House and a local developer uh, w- where they are having some of the housing set aside for youth aging out of foster care. And then some of it is more kind of market rate or you know, relatively affordable housing. Um, but other than that, it is pretty much single family and duplex and then some senior apartment housing. And I think that the the actual housing stock is affordable. The problem is that the rents are not necessarily affordable. The, you know, the ratio of mortgage to rent is not favorable for renters. And uh, some of the rental properties are not properly maintained. And when you, when you have someone who's undocumented living in a house, uh, they are less likely to complain when the landlord you know, allows them to live in substandard conditions. So I think that is an issue. Um, and also, you know, people aren't getting the return of their investment on their homes. You know, our average assessment is about $84,000 in the 8th district. And yet the average sale price last year was like 77. So people are not getting the value of what they put into their homes, which means they're, they're afraid to repair it because they're afraid their assessment's going to go up. And then when they try to sell the house, it's not going to be worth what they put into it. So I think that's a problem we have to address. Are there specific policies or, I guess, broader things that you're looking at to really address those issues? Yeah, I mean, that's tricky, right? There are certain limitations as to what we can do with property taxes and what we can't. But I think if we found a way to sort of institute a, I don't want to say freeze, but I guess a freeze on, you know, say, okay, you can repair your house. You can you can increase the value of your house that you live in, your primary residence, as much as you want. And your taxes will not jump up until that such time as that becomes a revenue generating property or the time that you sell it. I think if we could find a way to do that, work with the state to, to make that happen, I think that would encourage more neighborhood stability, more beautiful neighborhoods, and would not price people, particularly elderly people, out of their homes just because they want to make some improvements. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one thing I've been, and this is a perfect segue into it, the Leighton Boulevard West Neighbors has for years run a contest awarding the most beautiful 
I don't know exactly what they call it, but most, most improved home. Yes, most. I improved was third home. place one year. All right, excellent. <laughs> uh, I guess my bigger question is, what can the city be doing to partner more with LBWN because they've been one of the most successful neighborhood groups at terms of generating actual positive improvements in the neighborhood. They've they've run a really tight ship in terms of they don't have this huge bloated budget and they're making a big impact. What can the city learn from that? What can they do with that organization? Yeah, I mean, that that's a tough one. I, I've done, you know, various uh, things with LBWN over the years. I, I think they got a great staff and, you know, certainly appreciate everything they've been doing. I would actually like to see, if possible, that the neighborhood uh, expand just a little bit um, you know, the, the line right now they go to is Lincoln. And I think the, the neighborhood just south of that could be, could be very much helped by them. But, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's a tough one. I mean, you know, when you think of a nonprofit, there is certain autonomy there. And if they're not getting a lot of money in city contracts, which I don't believe they're getting a lot in city contracts, you know, I don't know yeah, what the partnership looks are. like. Uh, are there other groups that you would like to see really the city find ways to work with in the, that are already operating in the neighborhood or are, yeah. there, are there groups that you'd like to see come to the neighborhood? Right, right. Uh, well, I mean, in terms of one that I really, you know, support, I, I used to work there, uh, you know, the, the Southside Organizing Center does a lot of good work on, on neighborhoods. You know, they are, they are, their mission, uh, part of their mission is to, to help residents start their own neighborhood associations. I was fortunate to be part of, of doing that in the Leighton Park South neighborhood. And um, just, you know, doing the door-to-door, you know, housing resources, sharing city services, you know, getting concerns, working with residents on on issues on their block. I think that's something we need more of, particularly probably the Muskego Way neighborhood. And I think there are some 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 smaller groups coming together, which, you know, may be able to to do some of that work in the near future. And I don't want to put the aldermanic campaign to the side, but there's two political races you've recently been involved in. And maybe there's more you can tell me about, but two in particular, I really want to ask about one, you served as campaign manager for Mandela Barnes, successful campaign for lieutenant governor. And two, just last week, you finished, I don't know if you were technically campaign manager, but a campaign consultant on Bob Peterson's citywide MPS uh, school board campaign. What did you learn from those? And in particular, I'm curious what all goes into running a lieutenant governor campaign. Right. So lieutenant governor in Wisconsin is an interesting scenario because, uh, you know, they run separately in the primary and then become a ticket in the general. Most states either do one or the other. It's either a completely separate election or it is a chosen by the governor candidate uh, thing. So getting people to care about the race and, and trying to raise money in a statewide race when, you know, people don't think of it. It's not the first race they think of. Right. But, you know, we were able to get all around the state and, and you know, Mandela had a great message and, and we were able to win 71 counties. I don't know that you'll find a candidate that can win 71 counties very often. And how did you, I guess, get into this? How did, how did you meet Mandela? How did you become his campaign manager? Yes. Yeah, so I met him, I mean, just in sort of political and, you know, progressive circles over the years. Um, he both him and uh, my friend Ben Juarez both interned at the mayor's office years ago. And um, so we've been kind of in touch for about seven years and uh, saw him at a criminal justice reform forum in Madison. And, uh, you know, we just said, hey, you know, I'm looking to hire a campaign manager. I go, well, interesting. I'm looking to get a little more political. And it just sort of worked out. And what does that look like, the day-to-day of being a campaign manager for something that isn't like the governor, but you're, you kind of end up in this marriage with him eventually? Yeah, I mean, so in the in the primary, it really is about setting the tone of the vision that that we as Democrats wanted to set for this election. You know, being bold, uh, running on a vision more more toward the AOC wing of the party than uh, the Joe Biden wing of the party. Let's just say, and I, I think that is what fired up the base. That is what 
got people out. And I think that's ultimately what made the difference in Tony Evers becoming elected our governor. And here's the big question. Does Mandela Barnes write all of his own tweets or is there someone out there ghostwriting oh, that for him? He will not let anyone touch his personal Twitter. Uh, you'll, you'll notice there was a campaign Twitter and there was a personal Twitter. The other Mandela is always the real Mandela Barnes. All right, because I think one of the strong points of his campaign, I'm not sure what percentage of voters are actually on Twitter, but Mandela really developed a voice. And so whichever part of that you played a role in, good job, because that really, I think, was the defining thing of his campaign. Right. I was the Facebook guy. The Facebook guy, <laughs> all right. And I guess let's pivot now to the Bob Peterson campaign. What did you learn there? What, I guess, was your role there? Yeah, so I, I got brought in the last... Well, about five weeks to uh, to as a consultant to help you know just help kind of put together the the pieces you know we had a, a great team uh, led by the campaign manager uh, Priscilla Bort with the Working Families Party and um, you know Bob was actually the union uh, president when I was at MTEA uh, when I was when I was a parrot MPS and so I've known him for a, a little while and you know just seeing the relationships and the network that he had built in this city over his thirty plus years in education was really inspiring to me and so I think. What I learned the most is that if you know if you stick with this long enough, you know you can make a real positive impact. Even though he wasn't a real political guy, this was his first campaign, but you know was able to get what fifty three, fifty four percent of the vote. And what can you learn from a citywide campaign like that that you can take to an aldermanic campaign? I, I think just, I mean, it's tough. They are very different things because in a citywide campaign, you you do some door knocking, but the candidate's not going to talk to every voter. In an aldermanic race, and particularly one with unfortunately, as low turnout as the 8th District has, you can literally talk to every voter. And so I think that is a huge difference. Um, you know, having to manage advertising and radio ads and all these things for a citywide race versus that, that intimate, you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships in a district race. Let's pivot back to the 8th District then. What is one thing everyone should know about the district? If I'm coming from Germantown, if I'm coming from Madison, why should I stop in the 8th District? Well, you should stop there because one of the reasons is we have some of the, we, we definitely punch above our weight when it comes to food. Uh, we have some really good uh, restaurants, you know, whether it's Thai, uh, Laotian, Mexican. Um, so I think that's something that's really good. Some just really beautiful blocks and some really beautiful old 100-year-old, uh, well, my house is 100 and four years old or five years old, um, bungalows. Uh, we're known for our bungalows, um, for Burnham Park, for Mitchell Park, right? The domes are in our district. That's something I'm going to be fighting very hard to make sure that, you know, we are able to keep. Well, let's talk about that. What is your strategy or not? Let's make you king for the day. What is your, What are you doing uh, regarding the domes? Right. So we are preserving the look and the mission of the dome. So whether that means completely rebuilding with new materials, but it looks the same, it's the same design, the same shape, and it has our plant collections in it, or whether that's just repairing the supports and keeping it exactly as is and maybe adding some exhibit space and some other buildings around it. Um, I just, those are such a unique design. I mean, they were named a national treasure by the Historic Trust or the National Trust for Historic Preservation. I just don't see any scenario where it, it helps our city to tear them down. Well, here's this thing that could help the district. Maybe it could help the district. I guess this is up. I'm looking for your opinion on. What do you think about the proposal to move the museum, the public museum, closer to the domes? Well, so the proposal that was written was was very unfortunate. Uh, it, it it started on an assumption that you would have to demolish the domes in order to co-locate. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there's enough space that if you wanted, you could put both buildings there and you wouldn't have to destroy the domes. But I do think that is an interesting idea. I think um, as a gateway to the south side, that would be 
very potentially transformative as long as the the infrastructure you know the the roads around it the traffic patterns if all that was was built in with a cohesion i think that could be great but the particular report they commissioned the museum didn't like it the domes don't like it i don't like it and it was predicated on an assumption that wasn't based on what they were actually studying which was that you had to destroy the domes okay so and you hit on the one thing that really concerns me about the proposal uh one i guess the, the big thing is, I, I hate to say it, but like the traffic, the logistics of moving that many people right by 27th and National there where there's a lot of traffic. That is a dangerous kind of wild uh, little stretch of road there just yeah. south of the domes before National, yeah. Now, I do think there is never waste a crisis. I think there's an opportunity there that there could be improvements that impact everyone's day on a positive basis by bringing the museum in in terms of getting money to reconfigure those roads or make safety improvements. Right. I mean, whether that means reconfiguring the viaduct so it's not, you know, a, a big straight shot that people kind of fly down. Maybe we lower that and connect it to the valley somehow. Maybe we reconfigure and add some more pedestrian bike paths around there. But yeah, I think there is a lot of potential there. And now let's talk about one thing you've got a front row seat for, education. What? So the city does not directly oversee Milwaukee Public Schools. The school board does. You know that. You just uh, were heavily involved in running a race for that. But what can the city be doing better to make education outcomes better for children in Milwaukee? By making sure that the, all the parents of all the kids are able to access a good-paying job, I think. You know, uh, making sure that the neighborhoods are as safe as possible. Whether when the, when there's a school event, making sure that, and this is some of this is happening already, making sure that city agencies like the Department of Neighborhood Services have uh, resource fairs and booths and, and things and you know at the schools so that when a parent comes in for conferences, maybe they'll see, oh look, there's a housing resource available in my neighborhood. I live in a targeted investment neighborhood. I could get this much money to help repair my home. You know, so just making sure that we're we're sharing resources that way. All right. And the last question then for you, and I'm sure it'll spur a bunch more, but the big question I don't let anyone out of here with, and I'm sure you'll give me a very good pandering answer as a good candidate, the most underrated bar or restaurant in your district, or well, anywhere in the city, I should say, but I just have an expectation of where your answer will fall. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people know about about Oscars. The secret's kind of out on that place uh, over on Pierce, and now there's a second location on, on Burnham uh, in my neighborhood. And so I think those are kind of easy. I think the one that I keep going back to that I really enjoy is uh, Thai Barbecue uh, over on National Avenue. All right. And where on National is that for people it's that don't know? It's just east of 35th. All right. And if I'm going there, what am I ordering on the menu? I always get the green curry uh, with the bamboo shoots and, and, and that, but there's a lot of good stuff. The, the Thai beef jerky is very, very good. Yeah, it's hard to go wrong there. All right. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't think so. I think you covered quite a bit. I'm sure I'll think of something as soon as I leave here. All right. And if people want to learn more about your campaign, where should they go? Uh, they can go to my Facebook or my website. Uh, both are Belinsky, number four, M-K-E, uh, either .com or Facebook.com slash Belinsky, four, M-K-E. All right. We'll post links to those when we post the show on UrbanMilwaukee.com. Uh, my guest today has been Justin Belinsky. He's running for alderman in the 8th District of Milwaukee. The primary election, if there are three or more candidates on the ballot, will be February of 2020. Uh, the general election will be April of 2020. Justin, thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much.